Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's must-see TV as the public portion of the Trump impeachment inquiry starts broadcasting. Andrew Scheer met with Justin Trudeau yesterday. We dig deep and find out what they talked about and what it's going to do for us. And is Canada keeping up with the times when it comes to global threats? Probably not. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of questions, not a whole lot of answers at this stage. Uh, we welcome Elliot Tepper back to the program to talk about this. Elliot, good morning. Thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, I was just mentioning, obviously we're going to talk about the impeachment inquiry today, uh, but Trump is busy today, too. He's uh, He's got a visitor at the White House. Yeah, there's a, a fellow NATO member, uh, second largest army in NATO, <clears throat> and somebody who's been something of a business partner in the past, that uh, is uh, Turkey, no, Erdogan is there, and he's there at the same time as these impeachment hearings are going on. Apparently, there's going to be a public press uh, meeting afterwards. Uh, this is common. The president meets with a, a foreign leader, and then uh, they, they get together and you know, talk to the public, uh, to the press. And that's going to be something like 3.30, which means that the hearings, which are underway now on impeachment, will be uh, behind uh, somewhat. The openings uh, will be there. So a lot of the attention is going to be not on Erdogan, not on Turkey, not on the Kurds, uh, our, our allies, our meaning Canadian as well, uh, but likely to turn to impeachment. Well, and, and obviously that's going to be the focus on the Hill today. Uh, this may sound like an elementary question, but I think it, it begs an answer. What do they hope to accomplish? I understand the Republicans and Democrats have different ideas about what they want to see happen here, but there are probably not going to be any surprises. We pretty much know who's going to be in front of the, the committee, and we pretty much know what they're going to say. Yes, the Democrats are banking heavily on swaying public opinion through these uh, open hearings, particularly the first two that are, you know, the first hours everybody's supposed to be watching. And that will sway opinion enough in favor of impeachment because the evidence will be so compelling in their view that that will in turn sway some votes, not only in the House, uh, where this is going to be, you know, part of bipartisan uh, support is missing, but into the Senate where the actual trial is going ahead. So a lot of this has to do with we're going to change some minds, but we just have a brand new poll that came out that shows 81% of the population is not likely to change their mind, and that a third of the population doesn't plan to watch. This is possibly a make-or-break moment in terms of public opinion, and it's likely the Democrats are going to lose on that gamble. But now that the, the Democrats have gone down this rabbit hole, there's really no way out, is there? No. The decision was made to proceed. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, as you know, was the speaker, was very reluctant to uh, to take this uh, next step. She was quite willing to have hearings and investigations, and many of her committees were already undergoing undergoing some kinds of investigation on one thing or another. But uh, once this phone call and once this evidence came so clearly in the view of the Democrats that this was. Uh, an impeachable offense that they could not ignore, she then got on board, and now we're underway. But the concern here, obviously, is public opinion, and points well taken, Elliot, that you want to try to sway this, but those who are interested and, and bothering to pay much attention to this pretty much know what's, what's going to be said today. Are you surprised that public opinion seems to have stalled? I mean, there was a point there 
uh, just around the time, of course, of, of that phone call and the, uh, the the whistleblower story, that public opinion seemed to sway in favor of impeachment. But it's pretty much stalled at around 50, 51% of the last time I saw it, anyway. Yes, well, what was happening there was that the people that had followed Pelosi's point of view in advance, that is, primarily Democrats uh, who were saying, and independents, who were saying Pelosi's right, uh, we shouldn't uh, go for impeachment. Uh, then once it was inevitable, that is, once they took the step, Pelosi and the Democrats, then Democrats and independents who have been saying, no, we don't want to do it, are saying, yeah, it's okay with us. But the Republican side of the equation didn't budge. So the increase in terms of support for impeachment really just comes from the side that, um, you know, really uh, from the Democratic side of the, of the aisle. And keep in mind that the President of the United States has never broken 50% in approval, uh, that his normal approval rating goes someplace from 38 to 45%. So what you're seeing is that that other side of the equation there, uh, the 60% or whatever, 55%, have now swung behind uh, the idea of exploring impeachment. It's interesting to see the, the strategies in play here, and obviously we know what the Democrats are going to be doing, and they're, they're focusing on Ukraine, they're focusing on not just the phone call, as, uh, as Adam Schiff said, uh, but the, the events leading up to it and events after that, too, that they say is all part of the bigger picture. Uh, the Republicans went from, no, this whole thing is a sham and the, the process stinks, uh, to now they've moved into detail, and, but they're basically, I guess, to encapsulate this, simply saying, look, th- there's nothing to see here. Yeah, he, he might have, you know, the phone call was perfect and everything else, but it's not an impeachable offense. Even Nikki Haley has weighed in on this now. Yes, uh, that's an interesting separate story, the Nikki Haley Yeah, story. isn't it, though? Uh, the, now, the Democrats are being uh, smart, I think, in now trying to reframe this. You and I have talked about this from the beginning, and now the public perception is probably where you and I started, which is they possibly can get... Uh, Impeachment proceedings uh, in the in the House. It'll go into the Senate. It'll be dismissed, and then it, you know everything goes back to normal. But uh, the Democrats are now trying to reframe this for more effectiveness from something like quid pro quo and it's a telephone call into bribery. That this is an an attempt by the president to bribe uh, using the the aid money and uh, access to the White House to lean on the Ukrainian president. Uh, to bribe him into helping uh, his personal gain, that is, his own re-election chances, by making, forcing him basically to go on air and saying, we, we plan to talk about uh, Ukraine, uh, we, we plan to investigate Biden and Clinton, and, uh, and therefore this would help the president. So uh, the key point that's now being made is, well, it, you can't even call it bribery because the aid money was actually released. And you'll hear the Republicans today hammering this over and over again. There's nothing to see here. Uh, corruption is appropriate to investigate by the U.S. president. Aid money was released, so therefore there was no attempt to intimidate uh, a foreigner to help domestic politics. This was all above board, and that's where the line is going to line is going to go today. Yeah, but and, and there are counterpoints to that, obviously, as oh, uh, as a couple of the Democrats mentioned yesterday in some of the coverage I was watching. As, uh, yeah, the money did flow, but it did not flow by the time that phone call was being made, and that's what, the essence of what they're saying. That's where they feel the crime occurred. Yes, they, the president knew about the whistleblower's uh, inquiry behind the scenes, uh, and then uh, also there was another story that he got legal advice uh, that 
you know, Congress had appropriated this money. He couldn't legally block it. And you put those two things together, and the money did flow. But it didn't flow until, as you just pointed out accurately, after uh, that phone call and, and the related things, Rudy Giuliani and the removal of the American ambassador who was uh, concerned about all this. So all of the things that we have been seeing and hearing is likely to be confirmed. But you asked me a key question last time we talked about this. Where is the smoking gun? Yeah. And the answer is, we see that we have a smoking gun. The president released the smoking gun when he couldn't get the Ukrainian government to do his bidding. He then released a transcript or a, a series of notes on the phone call, which he could then say corruption and Biden. Uh, he got it out in the public, but unfortunately for him, that was also seen as, as uh, evidence of corruption, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors trying to use foreigners to influence American politics. But this is not something that is going to touch the day-to-day lives of Americans. The Republicans, and you and I have talked about this, have framed this so carefully that the, the Democrats have been following the Republican um, parameters, mm-hmm. saying you can't look back, you can't go back to Mueller. Uh, by the way, Mueller was discredited. You can't you can't go back to the uh, Steele dossier. Oh, by the way, we discredited that. You can only look forward. So the Democrats said, okay, we'll take this, this phone call, which is you know, not in the past but in the present, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll only base a single charge here uh, based on a phone call and Rudy Giuliani and what he's up to instead of all the very po- other things that they've been investigating in their six committees all along on all kinds of other activities possibly could have led to a, a long broadsheet, a, a whole long, long list of potential impeachable offenses. Elliot, I guess the, the biggest concern that the Democrats must have here is how do you get the public's attention in this thing? I mean, you're right. I mean, uh, now they, they've changed the strategy. They, they don't use quid pro quo anymore because that, that's a rather benign Latin phrase that I guess a lot of people just don't understand. Uh, bribery is a, is a much more powerful word. And But but nobody, the, the, a lot of people just aren't paying attention to this. I mean, you've got to yelp and say, hey, hey, there's something going on here, like, like they did in Watergate. All of a sudden, when John Dean said, wait a minute, there's tapes of all that stuff, people started to pay attention. Yes. I don't. I don't see that happening here. No, we, we, we have this situation of the potential uh, <laughs> uh, smoking gun. That is, the, to put it in a, in a normal sense, mm-hmm. you can find there's a lie. You can find that there's a cover-up. You can find that there's obstruction of justice, and it still won't matter. So everybody in the press is now hyping what is going on today as a truly historic event, and it is only third or fourth president ever to be impeached or face possibility of impeachment. But it turns out it might be a blip, not an inflection point in history. And that's where we are at the, in our bizarre state of politics today. Well, especially because, uh, you, you know, you've told us before, I mean, when you count the number, uh, the, the heads here, uh, even if they do move ahead with this, even if they do uh, vote to impeach, uh, it's going to die in the Senate. The, yes, the, I don't I mean, see any Republicans that, that are being swayed by this in any way, shape, or form. That's what we, yes, you and I talked about this quite a long time ago, that uh, this is going to just be a very quick process. It'll go on to the Senate. You need 20 Republicans to switch sides and vote for conviction. Remember, the, the House only draws up a bill of particulars. The Senate sits as a jury, presided over by the Chief Justice, and only they can actually convict and remove and that's so unlikely 
then we have to say what's the nature of this uh, game. And the Republicans, Trump personally, is using this, <laughs> Bill, as a fundraiser. Yeah. And they have raised a bucket of money on this issue, saying, you know, you've got to rally around the president. Here's, they actually have an ad. There's an impeachment fund, and they've raised record amounts of money on top of the record amounts of money they already have been amassing since the day after the election when they set up a re-election uh, committee in a campaign. So we are in a strange situation of a moment of historic importance that's going to pr- probably turn out to be a ratings bust and have almost no impact on politics. Well, it may have an impact on politics in a, in a more bizarre way that the Republican, yes. uh, that the Democrats didn't even figure, because uh, when, and I thought, I'm not going to even gonna say if, but when, the Senate says, no, there's not going to be any impeachment. Uh, you know what? Trump's going to do a victory dance. You know, I've been vindicated yeah. again. It's a witch yeah. hat. And boy, and, and then, you know, that's, that's, that's going to put wind under his wings, of course, yeah. heading into the election. Into the election year. We are now yeah. into the election year. And that's another argument they're going to make. Why, why don't you trust the American people, say the Republicans? We have an election in less than a year. If you think there's a problem here, uh, put it out to the people. Let them choose. I've been following the polls very carefully and um, there's every possibility that Trump uh, will be reelected, and we we have for all kinds of reasons the Democrats clearly aren't getting their act together. And more importantly, what you see on the debate stage is totally cut off from the strategies that won the Democratic votes um, in the last election. That is the gubernatorial elections and others that we just saw, and the midterms. So those were all based on health care and on local issues. And the debates going on, on on the debate stage by the Democrats at the top uh, seem cut off from all that. So what the Democrats are interested in, as usual, is principle. And what the Republicans in is uh, interested in is a power. And they each pursue that effectively, but it's not a contest that may end up uh, removing Donald Trump from office. Elliot, as always, I know it's a busy day for you. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Oh, you're very welcome. We'll talk again soon. Elliot Tepper, of course, from Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, of course, we've had our federal election. We've got a minority government, and we found out uh, the other day that uh, they're going to get back to work first week of December. Uh, what the prime minister is doing this week is meeting with the uh, opposition leaders uh, one by one to try to get some, I guess, ideas of, as to how these guys can work together once they finally get back to work. Uh, yesterday it was Andrew Scheer, uh, block leader Blachette today. Uh, joining us to talk about what might happen under this is a Christo Avalos, of course, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow uh, in history at the uh, University of Toronto. Uh, Christo, thanks for joining us. Glad you could be with us here today. Thank you. Let me ask you something. In, in a minority situation, obviously there's going to have to be some cooperation to, to get any, any material moved, any agenda moved forward. Uh, but aside from the obvious photo opportunity, are, you, are we really going to see anything happen here? Any partnerships that are going to be forged? I mean, right now, at least, Justin Trudeau has sort of indicated that he's not looking for a formal coalition or even an informal supply and confidence deal like we saw you know, in the 1970s between David Lewis and, uh, and, and Pierre Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau feels that he has the ability to govern uh, sort of as a quasi-majority, and getting support from uh, the other parties on individual issues. And I think that's what he's trying to do, is try to, in, a, in effect, maintain a singular hold on power, but recognize that because he has the weakest support of any prime minister in the history of our confederation, 
that he needs to at least appear like he's compromising. He also has a lot of flexibility because given the uh, the position of all the other parties, no two parties add up to more seats than the Liberals. So, for instance, the Bloc and Conservatives cooperating together could not on their own take down the Liberal government unless you know there was some anom- phenomenon where a bunch of Liberals didn't show up or what have you. The Liberal caucus is bigger than any two parties combined. So I think Trudeau's goal will be to find allies on an issue-by-issue basis. So pipelines, tax cuts, he's got an ally in Andrew Scheer, at least hypothetically. If he wants to do something on Medicare, his voters want to do it, uh, or Pharmacare. I, I don't know if Trudeau wants to do it. Um, he can find an ally in Jagmeet Singh, and then so on from there. So it's really stick handling. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the, a good analogy, because again, if in a, hyper, more, in, a, in a different hypothetical situation where Trudeau wins the election, but let's say beats Andrew Scheer by 10 seats and he's at about 140, and the NEP in that election wins more seats and ends up with about 30, 35 seats. Uh, in that scenario, Trudeau very much is at the mercy of um, needing another party to consistently hold power. He has the most seats. He has the right to form a government um, to test the House. But if he wants some stability, he would need a kind of more consistent ally. Maybe not on every issue, but on most. Here, he feels at least that no one wants to call an election and that no one or two parties can unite to stop him and overturn his government, that he doesn't need you know, to focus on one consistent you know, partnership here. He can kind of pass legislation on a case-by-case basis. How conciliatory does he have to be? I guess I, I, I was going to equate this to Stephen Harper's first government uh, in 2006. It was a minority government as well. Uh, he didn't play in the sandbox with anybody, really. He just figured, I'm going to do what I do, and if you want to vote for it, fine. Uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of cooperation there. I think there's a, he's got to strike a fine balance. Again, this election, obviously Trudeau won, uh, didn't win the popular vote, uh, lost a lot of seats in key parts of the country, um, was shut out from much of the West, uh, you know, uh, he, 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 there was, and, and of course the bloc uh, p- stopped their potential majority. And when you add up all of those things together, what you eventually, what you see is that, you know, there does need to be some cooperation. And I think Trudeau has to sort of balance it. Some would suggest that, you know, with the West being particularly alienated right now, he needs to show some conciliatory, uh, some, some, you know, compromise with the West, although, you know, Trudeau did. Trudeau does offer the West it, their core platform pieces. Trudeau is building the pipeline, and Trudeau is offering conservative-style tax cuts. And so, you know, the, he he has done that. The the West, I sort of think, always forgets that Trudeau is sort of a right-of-center prime minister, so they kind of don't know what they have. More, I think, important for Trudeau is his left flank. Um, all the polling we've seen has shown that the only outcome Canadians would have been happy with in this election was a liberal NDP coalition. No one wanted a liberal majority. No one want, like uh, The majority didn't want a liberal majority. No one wanted a conservative majority, except for conservatives, and on and on and on. Uh, and if you look at the polling, uh, the policies of Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, every single one of the major platform pieces polls with above 50, and in many cases, 75% support. When you add all of that together... Trudeau doesn't technically have to listen to the NDP on many issues. They are the fourth party, technically. But Trudeau has to be wary of the fact that many people, upwards of 43% of his voters, were strategic voters, and those people are going to be depending on him to basically help implement the NDP program. And if he doesn't, that could give a lot of momentum to Jagmeet Singh, maybe not 
in the technical nature of the parliament where, you know, seats matter, but in the public mindset. It's it's going to be difficult, I guess. It's and a process, I would think, anyway, Christo, to, to actually find that common ground. The, the reporting we saw from the meeting yesterday between Trudeau and Scheer uh, essentially said that Scheer basically just gave the agenda that he talked about all through the election campaign, said, oh, I want you to, to, to do all this stuff. Well, that's not going to happen. We know that. Uh, but but as you mentioned, with things like the pipeline and, and, and perhaps the trade deal, uh, they're going to vote for it regardless anyway, because that's part of their platform as well. I mean, the liberal and conservative platforms are very similar. Liberal voters will not agree. Conservative voters will not agree. There's a broad agreement. They both support the coup in Bolivia. They both support the coup in Venezuela. They both support the pipeline. They both support tax cuts with benefit the upper middle class more than the poorest. Like, there's a broad fundamental agreement. They don't agree on the carbon tax, but the carbon tax is a small fee conservative policy. Like, the Liberal Party is offering a very pro-conservative platform, at least in an ideological sense, if not in a political sense. Again, the real issue here is that 43% of Liberal voters voted for the Liberals to stop the Conservatives. And so the Liberals need to be careful, because while, indeed, they do have, you know, 153 seats, while the NDP only has, you know, in the 20s, about 24, 25 seats, the reality is, is that upwards of 80% of voters and upwards of 90% of liberal voters want every single major platform piece that Jugmeet Singh ran on. And so Justin Trudeau doesn't really have a mandate to implement a liberal platform. Justin Trudeau sort of has the biggest mandate to basically implement the NDP's platform with Jugmeet Singh. But see, Trudeau's interests, the interests of the liberal party, are opposed to that. And this is where he could get into trouble because he's going to work with Andrew Scheer to implement the pipeline and the tax cuts and support coups in Latin America, but he won't work with his average voter to implement dental care, to implement, you know, uh, ending the interest on student loans. And that's where he could get into trouble because Jagmeet Singh is going to be able to go into the media, go to Canadians and say, look, you want what I offered. Trudeau has the opportunity to work with me to make it happen. If Trudeau wanted to form a stable four-year government, he could do so with Jagmeet Singh, because the NDP plus Liberals is more than 180 seats. That, that's a stable, uh, you know, stable government, more than 11 or 12 seats above the majority. But he's chosen not to, and I think that would pose a lot of trouble to Trudeau. And I think he's erroneous if he wants to work with the West. I think that's a fool's errand, because the West has shown that you can buy a pipeline, you can be a champion for the oil industry, but whether you're Rachel Notley or Justin Trudeau, they're going to punish you and vote conservative anyway. Christo, where did the, did the bloc fit in on this? I mean, he's meeting with bloc leader Washap today. Uh, obviously, we know that, uh, that they are opposed to any sort of a, 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 a east-west pipeline. They've made that pretty clear. And I'm not so sure the liberals even have any intention of doing that. Uh, that, that didn't really go over too well uh, with an awful lot of people when he had a majority government. But... I, I'm not so sure that they care one way or another about if the Trans Mountains built or not, uh, and they could be supportive of, of, of the government in a situation like this. So it, it, that's the meeting I think is going to be rather interesting, just to see to get the lay of the land as to where they stand on issues. Yeah, no, certainly the blocks. If you look at um, the potential landmine situation, which is that on a particular issue or set of issues, the block and the conservatives could work together, and that sort of equals close to where the liberals are in seats. So the Liberals would have to be careful and make sure all their MPs are within a few blocks of Parliament if there's a sense that this could happen. So Trudeau's going to have to be very careful there. With the bloc, I do feel that there's a general anti-pipeline animus in that party, just like there is in the NDP. But because it is a sort of Quebec-only party, 
they might be willing to, uh, you know, uh, ignore a pipeline out west if we're guarantees for a no pipeline here. I, I'm not so sure if Justin Trudeau is planning a pipeline uh, eastward. It seems like the sort of thing that if Trudeau was going to do it, he was going to, uh, if, and, and, you know, and I put this quite blatantly, effectively lie by omission, win a majority, do it, and hope people forget in four years. I don't think a minority liberal government, even if it could get the votes, given that you know the conservatives would support an eastward pipeline, would do that knowing the, the political dangers. And of course, with the bloc in general, I think Trudeau, with the bloc and with the NDP, has to be thinking, how do I get those people to continue to support me? How do I win back those people who voted liberal in 2015 but voted bloc this time? And how do I prevent the 43% of my voters who were strategic voters from going where they actually you know, have their hearts, which is with the NDP and Greens, from actually doing that? And I think that's going to be very tricky. And I think that while he is going to work with the westward pipeline, I think that the eastward pipeline is just political. It's political suicide for Justin Trudeau. Christo, history shows us that uh, when we're in these situations, as, as you say, the NDP may not have the balance of power here, but they can be supportive of the government, but they're going to want something in return. Uh, Jagmeet Singh's got to be, I, I think, rather strategic as to what he's going to ask for here. You mentioned a, a number of programs that came up during the campaign, of course, uh, Pharmacare being one of them and, and, and a couple of other things that he was really hammering away on. Uh, can we anticipate that we're going to see at least one of those things uh, incorporated into the government policies? That's an interesting question. Certainly, Jagmeet uh, has to be very uh, strategic. He's going to continue to oppose the pipeline, which I, I believe personally is the right thing to do. Um, he's going to continue to push for electoral reform, which, again, I believe is the right thing to do. But if you have a, uh, the liberals and conservatives who add up to the vast majority of seats, and both of them oppose electoral reform, and both of them support a pipeline, those are not necessarily issues that in Parliament you can focus on. I think for Singh, the goal is find those issues that the liberals nodded to, because as liberals often do during elections, and then sort of pull back and issues that you ran on and that are extremely popular. And I think you saw that from Singh, where he's talked about justice for indigenous people, which polls well. He also talked about pharmacare uh, and dental care as, as key issues, as well as a wealth tax, all of which poll extremely well. And I think those have to be his focus. Things that the liberals would support if they feel the public support is there, and if they feel their own voters are, are, are will leave them if they don't implement it. And I think that's what Singh has to focus. I think you might see a move towards uh, pharmacare, but the question will be, will the liberals implement you know, an actual pharmacare system, or will they do some sort of patchwork? And I think what Singh has been pushing for and what the polling indicates, uh, from what I've seen, uh, you know, Abacus did a poll after the election, that there's broad support for a universal, single-payer pharmacare system. And in that sense, you know, Singh's pressure on Trudeau might... Uh, have him implement the pharmacare system. Then again, at the end of the day, Justin Trudeau's interests are more aligned with Andrew Scheer than with his own voters, so we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, that's that's going to be fascinating to see just exactly where they go on this, because the pharmacare program is uh, something that the liberals have not said, well, no, we're never going to do that. They just don't seem to want to move forward on that. I mean, maybe a, a, a nudge in that direction from the NDP might move it, not unlike what happened, I guess, in the uh, the 1960s when, when uh, Medicare was finally passed by the Pearson government at that time. That was obviously Tommy Douglas and the NDP were the, the ones that were kind of pushing that, and it, it ended up happening. So 
but again, I guess it's going to be one of those situations where they're going to have to decide which way they're going to go. I got to ask you one other thing too. I'm glad you brought that up because you were talking about uh, votes and and you know m- the minority governments are always in a precarious position on especially votes to do with any you know to finances and things of this nature. Uh, so you got to make sure everybody's there, and the party whip has a, a, a great job to do there to do this. But I saw a story today that uh, Gerald Regan, who was the uh, the speaker in the, the last parliament in the majority parliament, says he's thinking about getting the job back. He wants to apply for it again. When you're in the minority, don't you need all hands on deck? Uh, do you really want one of you guys to be the speaker and win that? Because they don't get to vote, do they? Well, the speaker votes in the case of a tie. Okay. And, you know, in very, very narrow scenarios. Like, so, for instance, in the BC, uh, the BC election back in 2017, as you recall, it was a razor's edge, and the Greens plus the NDP formed a kind of very narrow government. And the whole worry was, okay, if they appoint a speaker, technically the speaker can vote in a tie. But effectively, that's a very untenable parliament. What ended up happening was a, a liberal eventually agreed to take the position, and that person was made it, which made the government a bit more stable. And of course, as we've seen, that liberal, liberal uh, NDP Green government has now lasted for more than two years, which is, which is rather impressive. Um, federally here, I don't know if that matters as much for a couple reasons. One, the Liberals have a big lead over the second place party. Uh, it's more than it's, I think it's more than twenty seats, or it's about twenty seats. And because of that, there's not a sense that your one Liberal uh, becoming Speaker will put them as the second party. And again, I think if you add up the block plus the Conservatives, there's only there's the Liberals still have about three seats extra on those two parties. So right now, at least, I don't feel there's a risk to appointing a liberal to the Speaker of the House. Uh, it's not so precarious a situation that that's necessary. I, I, I always, yeah, I'm always concerned because they, they have to do the head counting. And they, it was the B.C. situation that made me question this. Is, yeah. is that really going to be a good strategy? But it sounds like the yeah. numbers are going to be there anyway. Yeah, no, certainly. Yeah, because, again, that was a case where it was the, the gap between the, the two coalitions, if you will, the Liberals on their own and the B.C. Green, B.C. NDP, was a razor thin. Here the Liberals can say, well, look, we got 157 seats. One of our people becomes speaker. Effectively, that's 156. Um, but, you know, the conservatives plus the bloc are like 153. Nobody seems to be wanting an election right now. If you look at the polling, Canadians don't want an election. They want Trudeau to cooperate, especially with the NDP, but with everybody. They want to see that cooperation. The smaller parties need to regain their finances. And the conservatives, uh, it doesn't look like Scheer is going to be forced out by his caucus. But I wouldn't necessarily rule out the party membership forcing him out. So all of these things considered, I don't think we're going to see an immediate election. I think this is going to last at least a year and a half, maybe two years. And so given all of that, I don't, see the, I don't think the Liberals see a risk in making one of their own speaker. And not to say that the speaker is, um, is partisan, not to accuse him of bias, but I'm sure that if all things considered, you want one of your own to be speaker. Absolutely. And the, the sheer situation is, is fascinating as well, because it seems to have kind of moved to the back burner now since the the caucus decided they weren't going to do anything about that. But uh, that, that April date is looming rather large for him, isn't it? Yeah, well, if you look at some of the polling, what you've seen is that the other party leaders have strong support from their own members. Blanchette, obviously, very well supported. Even Justin Trudeau, despite his scandals and Singh, you know, some people say, well, he lost seats. Should he go? The reality is, is that uh, both of Singh and Trudeau have support above 90 percent of their party from what I've seen in polling, which would easily you know, be a very uh, smooth sailing uh, leadership review. 
But the polling for Shearers indicate that his support is anywhere from uh, 50 to 70 percent. And if it's below 70, a lot of people start asking questions about, you know, should that person go? And as you know, with Joe Clark, I don't know his exact number, but it was below 70, I believe. And he ended up basically uh, uh, saying, we'll have a leadership review. And he lost his job to Brian Mulroney. And, you know, Peter McKay has said he would vote for Andrew Shearer in a leadership review. But I'm not sure that means that uh, Peter McKay isn't hoping that somebody else will finish off Shearer and then he can come in as the reluctant, quote-unquote, successor. I I would say that especially because the Conservatives are unsure about their leadership future, there's going to be very, very little um, uh, desire from any of the opposition parties to actually call an election. And even Trudeau, I think, is going to maybe seek his opportunity to find a majority here, but if he pulls that trigger too early, he's going to look opportunistic. So I'm thinking this is going to be a two-year minority government at least. Christo, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me. Christo Avalos, of course, from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about national security because that was part of the discussion on Capitol, on Parliament Hill yesterday. Uh, Canada is not doing enough to protect itself from global threats, uh, so says the former head of CSIS. Uh, and I think there's some, some, obviously, where there's some smoke, there's some fire, there's a great deal of concern beso- because of what's going on on the international situation. Joining us to talk about this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, Phil, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hey, Bill. How are you today? I'm well. I'm uh, concerned, and, and I'm sure you are, too, about what's going on globally. And, and maybe we can tie this into some of the concerns about NATO that uh, I know French President Macron talked about last week, uh, saying that NATO is not dead, uh, but I think he says uh, it's, it's got brain dead, essentially, because the U.S. is backing away from this. Uh, and where there's a void of power, you always have to wonder who's going to mo- move in there to take it over. Uh, I don't know necessarily know, Phil, if Canada has the, the, the ability to do that, but the, we, we've got to be concerned about being a potential target by whoever does. Well, you raise a really good point, Bill, and I did read Mr. Fadden's comments. I worked under Mr. Fadden when I was at CSIS, yeah. and I don't, I don't disagree with him. The problem is, is that at any given time, when you work in national security, there are a plethora of threats. There's a whole bunch of threats out there, and you've got to figure out how do you allocate resources to meet each one. So I'm old enough, Bill, to have started my career when the Cold War was still hot in the early 80s, and I saw the fall of the wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the rise of terrorism. So I've seen things change a lot over the years, and it's never easy to figure out, you know, where do I put my people, where do I put my money, and when can I actually say that this threat is no longer worth watching? The the bottom line is you, you can never say that, but there are pressures to move resources and there's pressures to do things. So it's a really hard calculus to make it the rest of the time. Well, and, and as you mentioned about the, the changing times, I mean, there was a period of time, I guess, back in the, in the 50s, 40s, during the, the initiation of the Cold War after World War II, where you were worried about a physical threat, somebody coming across your border and saying, you know, we're here now. Uh, it's, it's cyber threats that I think we need to be concerned about here and, and the way that governments can use that material uh, well, to destroy economies, to do any number of different things. You, you, that's a really good point. And I think what's also changed is that, you know, we may not worry so much about physical invasions, like, you know, the Soviets sending ICBMs over the North Pole. I remember those days. Oh, we yeah. Had a, we had a whole defense system that was just trying to give us as much warning as possible. The problem is, is that the world's become smaller, and it's become smaller thanks to the Internet, social media, and telecommunications. So you don't have to send an ICBM. 
You can send a virus. You can send uh, denial of, of, of uh, service attacks. You can send all kinds of things that can disrupt our systems. Because you know as well as I know, Bill, everything we do now is online. We talk about the Internet of Things. Your toaster, my God, is talking to the Internet. And so they could take our toasters down in a heartbeat or, or things much worse than that. So I think that's the challenge facing organizations like CSIS, like CSE, where I also worked for 17 and a half years, like D&D, like the RCMP. It's this multiplicity of threats on many levels that you have to look at all at the same time. That's the challenge. Who are the players here? I, I, I know that uh, in his comments, uh, Mr. Fadden talked about Russia and China. Uh, those seem to be the two obvious ones. Uh, yeah, and, the, and, and for good reason, right? Uh, neither of them are our friends, especially China these days, yeah. but also Russia. I would argue we need to worry about India. Uh, the, the direction that that government's taking is not very friendly. I would also worry. My North Korea, yes and no. I'm not a North Korea expert, Bill. I want to be careful here. But they can certainly do a lot of things that are, are bothersome at, at a minimum. And, of course, you've got what's happening in the Middle East, which, <laughs> you know what, Bill, I worked in the Middle East for a long time, for almost 35 years, and is there a solution to that, or is there a way to make it better? I have no idea. It seems to be this perennial thorn in our sides. And is, is it going to get better? I don't think so. Well, and that's the concern. I mean, how many people have taken a kick at that one? And, and you know, okay, we're going to, you know, is it going to be the two-state thing in, in Palestine? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? And uh, it seems as if the players may be changing a little bit. We're not going to sure what's, what's happening with Netanyahu yet at this stage. But but the, fal- the reality is it's always going to be a political hotspot, I think. You're right. And, you know, we should mention Turkey as well. Yeah. I mean, this is a really problematic state that was an original member of NATO, played an incredible part in the Cold War. It was the one sort of, you know, uh, territorial part we had that we had a great insight into the Soviet Union and the Central Asia in the, you know, since the Second World War. Are they on our are they on our side anymore? I don't know. I don't know whose side Erdogan is on. He's in Washington they talking to Trump. I don't know where that one goes. So, you know, it's it's things are changing. I mean things have always changed, Bill. I mean that's not let's not say this is a, you know, change is not a new phenomenon. I think what's different now, and this is maybe just the old me talking, is the speed with which things change. In the old days, you know, You'd wait for the, the slow boat from the colonies to get news on what's happening in the far-flung part of the world. Now you're getting it instantaneously, and that news can affect people. What they read can make them spur them to action. I think that's what's different, and that's the challenge facing our security intelligence and law enforcement agencies today. But since the inception, even going again back to the Cold War, but you know, relating it to what's going on today, uh, no matter where Canada was and what they were doing, Phil, we knew that the, the guys to the south of us had our back. Uh, more often than not in situations like this. And when there was a lot of partnerships, as you said, you know, the, the missile defense programs, things of this nature that were going on. Um, I'm not so sure that, I, I know the American people still have a great deal of respect, and there's a mutual respect between the two countries. But with what's going on in the White House right now, uh, where they basically seem to be backing away from an awful lot of their international responsibilities that they've been doing for generations, should we be concerned about that? Absolutely. I, I do talk to some former friends of mine who work for the FBI and the CIA, because you make friendships in this business, you know, when you, when you work there as long as I did. They're disgusted about what they what they see in here. They, they don't support their president. They don't support the way the administration is going. And here's some folks who are very good at what they do. They're very professional, and they're worried about what's happening. You know, let's face it, Bill, in Canada, we probably didn't really sort of pull our weight for the longest time. I mean, after the Second World War, we got, what, the fourth largest army in the world, or yeah. fourth largest Navy or Air Force, whatever it was. We haven't maintained that, and we probably should have. But you're right. We did rely on a southern neighbor who saw this as a continental security that we all shared. Does he share that anymore? I don't know. He doesn't seem to respect NATO. I don't know what else he thinks about other alliances. He seems to not think much of the G7 these days. So when you don't know where your principal ally stands on some fundamental national security issues, that must give the people here in Ottawa 
uh, pause. You know, can we rely on these people anymore? And if we can't, then you have to ask yourself, what do we need to do? Do we, do we increase our defense spending? Do we reach out to other allies in the European Union and NATO to make closer alliances with them? This is a tough thing place to be in because we haven't had to ask ourselves that question for the past 75 years. And now we have to. And so I wouldn't want to be, I'm, I'm glad I'm retired, put it that way. I'm glad I don't have to make decisions about, you know, who do we go to bed with in order to make sure our security is, is as good as it can be? It, it's a tough, it's a tough issue, absolutely. Well, and there was there's an infrastructure in place uh, for years. Uh, part of that was NATO, of course. You know, where the, these alliances are struck with a number of different nations, but it's it's obviously weaker now because Trump is, is backing away. He hasn't quit NATO, not yet, anyway. But uh, but obviously, uh, you know, uh, a number of people, including our prime minister, are very concerned about this at this stage right now. So he he's, he's weakened the whole infrastructure right now. And when he ma- weakens that, he weakens everybody. You're right. But I think the one saving grace here, Bill, might be that the, the people on the ground, the people that work in the U.S. armed forces, the people that work in U.S. intelligence, the people that work in a variety of U.S. agencies, they understand what the risks are. They understand the, the nature of alliances and the benefits and strengths of alliances. They're not going to take any steps to to undermine this. Whether whatever the president says, thankfully, you know, I'm not an American political scientist, but what I understand is that there are a lot of checks and balances in that system. So even though even though the commander in chief is, is is tweeting all kinds of idiocies on a daily basis, that doesn't mean that the people who work for him on a day to day basis, as civil servants, as members of the U.S. military and intelligence agencies, are going to follow his lead. So I think they get it. And I think they're going to hold out as long as they can. Um, again, I'm not sure what the president can or cannot do in terms of his authority, but I do know a lot of people are, are not supportive of the direction he's taking, and they want, they're on our side still, and, and, and they think very highly of us. And so that's the saving grace here, depending on how long it lasts. Phil, as you talk to some of your uh, your friends from the South and some of those security agencies uh, and law enforcement agencies down there, uh, you mentioned that many of them that you've talked to anyway are not supportive of the, the Trump administration and what they're doing. Uh, that is, is reciprocal. I mean, Trump has, has done everything he can to try to undermine those agencies, too. How difficult is it to work in a situation like that? Oh, it's terrible, Bill. Uh, I, I, I've talked to friends, and they're, they're just beside themselves. Like, how can the, you know, the president basically call you a doofus and call you incompetent and call you not important? These are men and women that devoted their, they de- devoted their lives to keeping the United States and its allies safe. They do what they can. They're very professional. You know, they don't work for the president. They work for the American people. And maybe that's one of the things we can rely on is that when I worked at CSIS, I didn't work for the prime minister. I worked for the Canadian government and the, and, and the people of Canada. As long as they hold to that, they will go to their jobs Monday to Friday. Actually, when you work intelligence, it's more like a 24-7 job. They will do the job to the best of their ability, irrespective of what the president tweets or says. So it's, it's demoralizing. They've told me that. But I know these people are very, they're very good people. They're very dedicated people. And they're going to do the best job they can. Um, you know, regardless of the situation they find themselves in. When it comes to global security like this, Phil, do you, does that old adage, keep your friends close, your enemies closer, uh, does that apply here? And, and I'm thinking once again about Russia and China here, that there was, a, a, I think, a, probably a policy some years ago where it was, let's just stay as far away from them, let them do what they want, just don't bother us. Uh, then, of course, there was the inclusive part of that, where they actually brought tru- uh, Putin into the G8, well, made it the G8 when he came in. He's been booted out again because of the way he's been behaving, but... Uh, now we're told that uh, I guess the next uh, G7 is actually going to be in the states, uh, not going to be a Donald Trump's uh, Donald Trump's clubhouse anymore. But <laughs> but he uh, he's making noises like he's going to invite Putin to that because as as the host he's allowed to do that. 
Yeah, I, I've heard those rumors as well, and uh, I, I can't imagine. Although, you know, President Macron in, Fran- in France has been making similar noises in that front. Look, Bill, I was in Moscow when, when they were part of the G8 at, at a summit, and it was it was bizarre for someone like me who, like I said, began my career in the Cold War to, to, to be sitting across from Russian intelligence services and talking about things. In my case, counterterrorism, it was almost surreal. I think we've got to be really careful here because. They want nothing more than a seat at the table, right? That way they can learn more about us, and that way they can pretend that they're actually on our side. I think it would be a mistake for the president to do that, but as you said, it's his prerogative as host. I hope that saner uh, minds uh, weigh in on this and and the administration. That remains to be seen, but this would be a bad move. Any more of those southern reaching out to China, that would be a good move. You know, we have this big debate about Huawei, and, and our security services have said categorically, don't bring Huawei into Canada. And, you know, I've learned, Bill, that your intelligence services can advise and advise and advise. At the end of the day, the government decides. There's no mandatory sort of thing they have to do. We, we can tell them what we think is right, and then they go ahead and make up their minds in another direction. So, yeah, it's become complicated. And uh, like I said in, in my introductory remarks, there's a multiplicity of threats we have to look at simultaneously, and I'm not sure we have the resources to do that, to be honest. Well, and therein lies the problem, and and you're right. It's it's the politics involved that's going to be somewhat troublesome. I think there's a very compelling case to tell Huawei, no, we're not going to let you guys in here. Uh, but, but the fact that they haven't said that yet is, is troubling. I know it, and it is to a number of our allies over in the U.K. Well, the five eyes, obviously, that are concerned about uh, global security situations like this. Uh, because the argument they're essentially presenting, Phil, as, as I see it, is you may as well just give them your passwords if you're going to let them in here because they're going to get in there anyway. Well, yeah, and that's the big concern. You, you, you nailed it there. Um, it's, it's what are they going to do with it? And the, the bottom line is that Huawei, everything in China is a state-owned firm, which must kowtow to the demands of the state. I'm wondering if the firing of Don Cherry at, from Hockey Night Canada, since Huawei is a sponsor of that, may, they may be thinking twice, may even think twice about investing in Canada. <laughs> but no, we shouldn't bring in Huawei. And, and all the experts that know an awful lot more about telecommunications and encryption than I do are saying we shouldn't do that. So. I think they're on the right course here. And as, you're, as you say, the Americans and the Australians are, are, are vociferous that we should not bring in Huawei. The, the Brits are dithering a little bit. But no, it's a bad move for us. And I, I think that our, our, our prime minister and our government should take the advice that the intelligence services are giving. Look, we don't do this in, in a partisan way. As I said, we don't work for the prime minister. We work for the Canadian people. And our, our advice is as objective as possible. And it's, it's the best advice we can give under the circumstances. So if, if you know, CSC saying don't do this, I'd be listening to what CSE is saying. In this situation, though, given the circumstances, and as, as you've just described them over the last couple of minutes here, Phil, uh, and given the concerns that Mr. Fadden expressed yesterday in Ottawa, uh, is, it, is it steady as she goes, or do we need to recalibrate the way that we're looking at national security? Oh, boy, how much time do we have? You know, <laughs> I, I'm a counterterrorism guy, Bill, yeah. so I, I think we should be looking at terrorism. I, I've, I've pushed back an awful lot in the past couple of years, to this big wave that, oh, you know, the jihadis are done, ISIS is done, let's focus on the far right and neo-Nazis and those guys. And I'm saying, yeah, look at those guys, but don't drop resources on, on the former to look at the latter. The problem is, is that I don't think we're in a world where CSIS and the RCMP and CSC are going to get a whack of new resources. I mean, I, I lived through the time when these organizations, when I was at CSIS, we doubled in size after 9-11 in a couple of years because of the enormity of the threat. I think those days are history. I don't think we're going to get there again. So we're going to have to make do with what we have, maybe some minor increases. And again, I'll go back to what I said. The challenge is how do you deploy the resources you have to a whole bunch of threats with the knowledge you're not going to get a lot more resources? This is a top, this is a, almost a day-to-day challenge, and you can't turn these ships you know, in, in, in a heartbeat. It takes a while. 
so they'll do, they'll do the best they can. They're very competent, professional organizations, and I have I have great faith in them. But it's a tough job to do, and, and you know they can't be in all places at all times. And I think that's the downside. Always a pleasure, Phil. Thanks so much for your perspective on this today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Have a good day. You too. Phil Gersky, of course, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and of course a former uh, CSIS member. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.